0: the financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode.
1: I would like to turn the floor to Tobias Adrian, and we're very happy to have him as a champion of Toronto Centre. He is the financial counsellor and director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department of the International Monetary Fund. His bio is too long to read, will wreck our event. But uh, he is uh, responsible for all manners of uh, financial stability and capacity building for the member countries of the IMF in the supervisory area. And Tobias, we are very delighted that you are able to be here. Thank you. So welcome uh, to the International Monetary Fund and welcome to this uh, uh, flagship event by the Toronto Center. And uh, congratulations to 25 years uh, of uh, the Toronto Center. Uh, That is uh, a big accomplishment. Um, And um, let me turn back uh, in time uh, a little bit. So back in uh, 98, uh, the Asian financial crisis uh, was uh, just, uh, uh, you know, not quite behind uh, everybody. Um, And, of course, Stefan Ingves uh, had joined uh, the IMF in order to help hands-on with the financial crisis. Um, This was also a transformational uh, event for MCM, for the Monetary and Capital Markets Department, which at that time was called uh, MAE, uh, the Monetary uh, uh, Affairs and Exchange Department. Is that right? Yes. Um, So, uh, you know, since uh, the late 90s, uh, what we are doing in MCM has really grown and capacity development, particularly in the area of uh, supervision and regulation has become extremely important. Alongside that, we are doing uh, surveillance, uh, particularly through the financial sector assessment programs, which really came to life around that time as well. Uh, so we are extremely happy to partner uh, with the Toronto Center in the endeavor uh, to build institutions around the world, to build uh, resilient, uh, well-governed, Uh, financial regulatory bodies, which in turn are building resilient and well-governed banking systems. Um, You know, there is a a lot of cooperation going on between the Toronto Center, the IMF, and the World Bank. Um, And um, it is uh, really uh, going back to uh, the crucial uh, contributions of Stefan. Um, You know, Stefan uh, was at the IMF at that time, and he was uh, from the very beginning with the Toronto Center. He's the board uh, chairman. Uh, and of course, of course, besides being a central bank governor uh, of the RICS Bank for so many years, he was also chair of the Basel Committee, particularly during the important time after the global financial crisis when banking regulations were redone from scratch. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm really uh, extremely honored uh, to um, uh, introduce uh, this panel. Um, you know, we have seen a number of banking turbulence uh, recently, uh, and, um, but we have also have seen a, a lot of resilience in the banks, right? Uh, so what is quite remarkable of the past month is that the U.S. banks uh, were sold off, European banks were sold off, but the emerging market banks uh, were not sold off. So equity market investors you know, did not have uh, an adverse view uh, on uh, emerging markets, at least not major emerging markets. And I think that's a testament to a lot of the work that has gone into the supervisory frameworks and into the capacity development work uh, that uh, so many in this room have worked on. Uh, So with that, uh, congratulations to 25 years, and uh, welcome back, Stefan. It's always uh, fantastic to have you here and a great honor. So I pass the floor to Jennifer.
2: Thanks, Tobias. Um, Stefan, this is a great pleasure for me. So first of all, congratulations. You've uh, recently been named the winner of the Central Banking's Lifetime Achievement Award, which is quite something. Um, I I did think, though, that you're probably not actually going to retire, so maybe they should have (laughs) held off a little bit. So you're between jobs, and that gives us a great opportunity to hear from you candidly because as as most people in the audience who know Stefan know, he doesn't like to express an opinion. So today we have, because he's here and he's between jobs, we're gonna hear what you think. Tobias teed it up really nicely for us. The first question we gotta ask, so we've had, you've been through the Swedish banking crisis, the Asia crisis, the global financial crisis, all the reforms that happened after that, the Basel Committee, the FSAP was created here at the IMF and the World Bank. The Toronto Centre came into being. We've done all this work, and yet the world's been rattled by two regional banks in the US going down, and then a a G-SIB having to be acquired by another G-SIB, a global systemically important bank being acquired, a huge bank. What does it mean? Does it mean that we haven't reformed enough? Does it mean you can never reform enough? Or does it mean this is a blip and we're not in a crisis? That's a lot of questions. Uh,
3: Well, first of all, There seems to be a consensus in many, many countries that it's okay to run banks with too little capital. And that consensus emerges out of a conversation between politicians and bankers. And there are many studies that show in quite quite detailed, in a quite detailed way, how much capital you actually would need in order to really last a long time. And there's something about the time frame and the political processes in this and here we have a record that goes hundreds of years back in time so this is there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to comes to this and we always sort of settled on settled on not enough capital and part of that is that it's actually in the interest of the politicians and the bankers to expand the balance sheets in the short run and then you just ignore that this comes to bite you, let's say on average in some countries, in my own country, once every 30 years or something like uh, something like that. And then the other part of it is, and I think that this is something about how the human mind works, uh, this time is different. <laughs> and, and mom and dad and grandpa, grandpa, grandma, grandpa, they did some stupid things, but this time we have really figured it out and it's safe, it's super safe. If we just add a couple of more hard to understand equations. We can get just a little bit closer to the edge and it's still solid as a rock. And that's not the case in real life because things happen. And then you have to deal with, uh, deal with them. So this sort of comes back again and again. And I recall, I'm not gonna mention any countries, when I was working here used to belong to the men in black, flew in with my black suit and my black leather briefcase. And the first question I got in this country with a, in a deep financial crisis, has this ever happened before?
2: So, so, but listening to that, you're suggesting we're sort of doomed to repeat ourselves then. We do. Okay. <laughs> Stefan, really. So, so does that mean the Basel Committee should have gone further the, the, that's after the GFC? That, that, that's that's, that's my
3: view? view. That's my view. But I was just the chairman, and it was my job to make sure that you got a compromise.
2: So it's inevitably a compromise. But don't we get better every time? I think it's better after the GFC?
3: It's hard to tell because all the technical stuff uh, you do uh, within the Basel Committee dealing with risk weights and all of that, risk weights are sort of like the weather report. But leverage ratio and real capital, that's the size of your rubber boots. And and that determines whether you will survive or not. And it's just very, very difficult to look into the future. And the way the human minds work, we tend to fight yesterday's war. And then you figure to find something new, or you try to, you create shadow banks, or you do crypto this and that and work your way around it. And that is because you make so much money if you lever up. So if there's a lot of leverage in the system, at least a few get filthy rich in the short run. And that's very tempting.
2: So what does the taxpayer take from that? What does the taxpayer do to protect themselves better?
3: Well, then it becomes very ideological because then uh, you say governments aren't supposed to own banks, and like it or not, central banks are lenders of last resort, and governments become owners of last resort. And then at the same time, it becomes very sort of ideological. And in some parts of the world, in some countries, the government has the capacity to clean up banks. And in other parts of the world, the the government shouldn't touch anything because it's actually cheaper to give the bank away, but ideally to foreigners. But that usually also strongly disliked by the ruling uh, ruling elite. So it's very, very hard to come up with um, kind of balanced solutions when it comes to these things. And at the same time, we need banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we definitely need banks because they do an awful lot of good things. Uh, but from time to time, they just run into uh, trouble.
2: Okay, so the other part of my question though was also, do you think this was a, a blip. These, these, you know. So that the approximate cause of both problems in Switzerland and here is interest rates going up, and the tide goes out a little bit. Do you think we're? These are just some institutions that had a rocky time, and it's going to be smooth now, or do you think this is a harbinger for things to come? It's and too
3: think? early. It's too early to tell. But when when I was sort of thinking about what has happened lately, and right now things seem to be okay where I I started, uh, I I reminded uh, myself of Bering's Bank, a very peculiar bank in, uh, special bank in in, in Singapore that went down because they super focused on doing the wrong thing. And then you had LTCM and they went down without anything really else happening in in the system. So we do have cases uh, when banks really focus on on doing things the wrong way, and that you only see with hindsight, because then with hindsight you can say, okay, each and every time there was a fork in the road, the wrong way and the right way, they chose the wrong way, but that you only know with hindsight. So there's there's actually quite a difference between a huge systemic problem, when the whole country or the whole system is in trouble, and then the few banks going under here and there, and it's too early to tell, but so far, uh, I would say that it's more sort of the former, former in the sense that there appears to be a few banks that have sort of focused on not getting their act together and then that came back to bite you. And that need not imply that the whole system is in, in trouble.
2: Okay, and so what, I asked about taxpayers and what, what lesson they take from this. What about supervisors? So, so one of the narratives you hear all the time in the press is supervisory failure, supervisory failure. Uh, what do you think?
3: I mean, it's an issue. sometimes it's an issue of resources and what you call risk-based supervision. Well, what does risk-based supervision mean? It means that you supervise large banks, and then you have less supervised supervision of medium-sized and small banks. Well, then something blows up, and you get criticized for that. C'est la vie. I mean, that's just, you just have to live with that, because you cannot solve every imaginable problem in the world with the... With supervision, you can do as best as you as best as you can. What does matter, though? And this is uh, why we had. The, uh, what what we have uh, the IMF. I do think that uh, supervisory capture is an issue at the domestic level, because if you get too close to the banks, you probably end up in small countries supervising your buddies. And if you don't p- plan to be a supervisor for the rest of your life, you want to maybe get a job at a bank. And if that gets too cozy, uh, then you might have a problem. So it's better, actually, from time to time to have a bunch of people from the IMF showing up completely detached and just say, give me the numbers. Okay. And then you sort of conclude, these numbers don't look good. Now what?
2: Yeah, and that's inspiration for my colleagues in the audience for sure, um, because we're not always welcome in that regard.
3: <laughs> no, 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 no. But people do understand that maybe they don't like you, and they didn't like me either when I was here. Uh, but but it sort of makes uh, it makes sense. It makes uh, it makes a lot of sense. Good. And and let me also add to that that here you have huge differences between countries because and part of it is maybe a cultural thing because in some some countries in some parts of the world, it's not a problem that somebody shows up from abroad criticizing you. Because you are strong enough and you're confident enough in your own right, and you have institutions strong enough where they can say, thank you, we, need, we will fix it. And just tell us what to do and we'll, we will fix it. And uh, you caught us, this wasn't good, so will uh, deal with it and in other parts of the world and in other countries uh, uh, it's culturally just too difficult just too difficult to handle that to have somebody else telling you what to do
2: okay so let's move past supervision then to your other your other job which is so you've done a lot of work in supervision but you're you're actually a governor of a central bank so you have to run monetary policy mm-hmm. so the the question of the moment right now is What's the trade-off now between price stability and financial stability? Is there a trade-off? And if there is, how do you think about it?
3: Yeah, I think that that trade-off is always there one way or the other, and it's been there for a long, long time, and it hasn't, and it's not sort of anything sort of special about it right now. And that's because if you run a central bank, people sort of intuitively understand that that's where the money comes from. And if you create too much of it, and things blow up, you're going to get criticized. And it will never fly then to say it was the supervisor's fault, or I only deal with monetary policy, and this is, should have been handled somewhere else. You're part of the system, and then you are always responsible, one way or the other. And this creates a dilemma from time to time. And let me pick one complete, a, a very one, one example of that uh, from the 90s in my case, but you can find this in many countries, when rates started going up in the 90s, we had just fixed the banking system. And we knew that we had to raise the rate, and we knew when the banking system was gonna die again. That was the dilemma. We made it that time because the Fed started, didn't go that high. And that sort of comes back from time to time in many, many countries. And then of the rest really depends on how much capital you have in the banks and what's the structure of your financial system. And you always need to be mindful of that because doing monetary policy in the real world is not a tailored equation. There's nothing wrong with the equations, but you actually need to understand what you're doing in, in, in terms of, you, you need to understand the sort of the, uh, the plumbing and the mechanics of these things. And that's where you find the limits of what is doable and not doable. And then of course, the more capital you have in the financial sector, the better off you are because that gives you more degrees of freedom uh, when it comes to monetary, uh, monetary policy. So ideally, uh, the, the whole financial sector should be capitalized in such a way that rates can go up and down without bad accidents happening. Uh, but it's incredibly hard to get to that point where, on the one hand, the central bank is always responsible because that's where the money comes from. But in many, many cases in that holds for my own country, you have supervision somewhere else. And then you have all sorts of other things kind of going on. Let's say in the housing market, just to pick one, uh, pick one example. So you are always responsible, but you are never in full control. And you just have to accept that as a fact of life. And if you don't like that, don't take the job.
2: (laughs) And if you don't like criticism, don't take the job. And if you
3: don't like criticism, (laughs) don't take the job either. I mean, that's just the way things are. But it is a dilemma. It is truly, in my view, a dilemma which we have not fully solved as of yet. And that, uh, that bothers me.
2: And you, so I take from what you say, you would not argue that financial stability shouldn't be in your mandate. You're, it is. you're in fact, it, you're like you inferencing know, It doesn't really is. matter
3: what, you, what yeah. you put in the paragraphs, you're stuck with it. And it's been like that since 1668 in my country because people do understand the central bank, that's where the money is. And that's where the money comes from. And, and that's just the way these things work, as long as you have your own currency. Because your own money, by definition, has something to do with what the central bank does. And you cannot escape from that. If you set up a currency board, if you use somebody else's currency, that's a completely different uh, setup. But as long as you have your own currency, there's no escape.
2: Very good, well, speaking of currency let 's move to uh, digitalization, which I know is a, a favorite topic. so <laughs> we 're in a world that digital transformation is happening quickly and more quickly than regulators, the supervisors, and the central banks could keep up with. I think is fair to say. Um, what do you think about regulation supervision, and supervision of crypto assets and and maybe you know recently we've had some some pretty big collapses, FTX, but there have been some other collapses of crypto assets. It's bouncing back, but what do you think? What, what is your view of, of why this has grown up, whether it's a threat to money, fiat money, wh- whether it's, it's here to stay is something we should regulate out of existence? How should we regulate it?
3: Uh, hard to give a precise answer to that, and that has something to do with the size and how fast these things grow. Uh, because you can argue that crypto this, that, and the other, that's sort of similar to trading stamps or paintings. And then you say, well, if that's what you want to do, you're on your own, and either you make money or you lose money. But eventually, these things, if they grow, and if they grow enough, then many, many citizens are likely to become affected in one way or the other. And I think a kind of a worst case, which is very much pre, pre-crypto, but is a good example, is the pyramid scheme they ended up with in Albania. Mm-hmm. When the whole country went down because every everybody got so gung ho about this, and that's a bad. I, I mean, that wasn't that wasn't good. And if we don't watch out, we can end up in a similar situation. And here, and this is just my impression because I don't deal with crypto myself. Uh, you, you don't do that when you are a central bank governor. Uh,
2: now you're free to. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I have a few more months. Uh, no. I, the issue is the following, that if you take a longer time perspective, we have spent 100, 150 years, maybe 200, 200 years in many, many countries defining what a stock exchange is, defining what a broker is, defining what it means to cr- trade for your own account, defining what it means to trade for your client's account. And if you mess things up, you get sent to jail and we have defined what a bank is, it might be hard, uh, and we define, we have legal definition of a deposit. But then in the crypto world, everything is just, you know, one big mess. And you can make a lot of money probably out of that in the short run, but if history gives us any guidance, it's gonna blow up for sure. And it has, and that's why I call stable coins unstable coins, because that's what they are.
2: Okay, <laughs> that was pretty unequivocal. Okay, my last question, and then we're gonna go to audience questions, so feel free to, to challenge um, the views on crypto if you feel, if you so desire. So some central banks have, in, in reaction, of course, to crypto assets, introduced CBDC. Um, how, do you, how do you see CBDC uh, affecting monetary policy, financial stability,
3: going forward? What do you think? Not much. Okay. And the reason is the following. When, when you're talking about physical banknotes, you need to be mindful of the fact that physical banknotes appeared in the f- shape and form they have today in the late 1800s. During that period, banks issued their own banknotes, and that created a huge mess. And there was a consensus in societies of that day that we needed to standardize. And money comes from the central bank. And back in those days, everything was on paper. Now we are moving into a world where we have to assume that nothing is on paper and that physical banknotes become more or less irrelevant. And then if we don't create CBDCs, then essentially that means that we have privatized money, because then it becomes impossible for the general public, for the citizens, to hold central bank money. And my personal view, and this is a value judgment, I think that that's a bad idea. And in that environment, it's going to be enough to have a few central banks issuing their own CBDCs, and then your citizens will move over to that currency instead. But. This is different. This is about monetary theory, which is a different topic to monetary policy. It's a totally different topic because this is actually about how you create money. Mm -hmm. When you do monetary policy, you assume that somebody else has created money already. And that's where you sometimes have a bit of a bit of confusion. But I do not think it's going uh, to threaten how we actually execute, conduct monetary policy at, at, at all. But here, absolutely, the devil is in the details. No question about that.
2: And by implication, smaller countries might have something to grapple with.
3: Yes, big time. There's no, no question. That's, that's there for, for sure. But I also think that in some instances, smaller countries will move much faster than many others. Because I do think that in special cases a CBDC can be very, very helpful when it comes to, let's say, financial inclusion. Because in some countries, the, the central bank is the only functioning institution. In a few. And, and, and if they are the ones who actually produce something you can trust, why say no to that?
2: Okay. So with that, I'd like to take some questions from the audience.
0: Thank you very much, Danayka Jakubulu from the London School of Economics economics Um
3: speaking about the future of central banking climate risk is one important risk that financial institutions uh, are um, beginning to measure and manage what do you see the role of central banks and the swedish central banks obviously has um, done a lot in this space but more broadly in the central banking world thank you well first of all central banks are part of our societies and part of monetary policy payment system financial stability is really dealing with understanding what's going on in your particular economy. And then if climate change starts uh, making a difference in terms of the economy is functioning, uh, then you cannot ignore that. You just have to try to understand that as best as you can. And with a fairly high likelihood, we're gonna see relative price changes when it comes to moving out of brown into something green or greener and that will affect the functioning of the economy, and you need to understand, you need to understand that, and, and and sort of factor that, so to speak, into into the equation when you do monetary policy. If this is a major thing or not, it's a bit too early, uh, too early to, uh, too early to tell. Many central banks today are independent, and many central banks today are quite re- resourceful. So. In many central banks in different parts of the world, they have the capacity to actually think about these things and write about them and explain to the general public what is actually going, going on. And from that perspective, I think it's a responsibility of central banks to produce this type of type of a sort of a public good. And then when it comes to managing your own reserves, you need to be careful about what you do with those, uh, do, do with those reserves, and you have some choices. Where, I don't know where we will end up, and here you will find differences uh, in different parts of the world and in different countries as to what extent the central bank should uh, engage in lending directly to green investments in this and that. Uh, There I'm much more hesitant, and if you want to do that, uh, to me it sounds more like kind of a fiscal issue, and you, you would probably be better off doing it on the fiscal side in, one, uh, in one, form, uh, one form or the other. But clearly, central banks were never designed to deal with global warning, warming. So the really, really tough parts of it has to be dealt with uh, by others because central banks simply just do not have, given most legal frameworks, any tool to deal with the, these, uh, these issues. So you have to live with it and ideally, you should be ahead of the curve. You can talk about it, uh, but at the end of the day, many of these problems will have to be solved by uh, by somebody else. But as I said earlier, when Jennifer asked questions, people understand that the central bank, that's where the money is. So that will, of course, create an infinite perennial demand on central banks that they should support this, that, and this, that, and the other, and then it become, becomes an issue of uh, what kind of governance structures do you have in your own country uh, when you set this up?
2: I mean, something that we worry about a little bit here, though, the overburdening of central banks. Yeah. I mean, central banks in emerging and developing economies, they have a big row to hoe, and then you know, sort of piling on other mandates worries us. Does that worry you, or you see it just?
3: Both yes and no, because if we're talking about very formal mandates, Mm. then that becomes difficult to deal with. But it it is your responsibility when you run a central bank to actually understand what's going on in your economy. And from that angle, you actually have to maybe rejig a bit what you do uh, within the central bank as such, in terms of how you actually think about things and what you focus, uh, focus on. Because one way or the other, the, the sort of the general trend is going to affect the macro in one form or the other, and monetary policy is part of the, part of the macro um,
1: Mark Dobler, IMF, I work on bank resolution uh, and so i 'd certainly be happier if banks had a lot more capital and that we didn 't have to resolve them. but making the assumption that we don 't make progress on that um, What would you conclude from recent developments in terms of the resolvability of banks and the the reform agenda post the global financial crisis on making banks more resolvable? Um, Certainly the VIX Bank has been at the forefront of cross-border coordination, the Nordic-Baltic simulations, and I'd personally like to draw some positives from the recent cases, but do you think banks are more resolvable? Do you think the resolution reforms have helped, or do you draw a less positive conclusion from the recent events?
3: I mean, it depends on what your financial sector looks like in the individual case. And you can, can come up with this sort of theoretical idea, which actually has truth to it in this country, because if you have 7,000 or 8,000 banks and a small bank goes under, then you sort of run the bank through the car wash and out comes a beautiful bank on Monday morning. But if you have three banks, very large banks relative to the size of your economy, then what do you do? Then it becomes sort of very, very different and, and much, more, uh, much more difficult. Suppose just for the sake of the argument that you, you run things by the book and you bail in a lot of bondholders. Well, well then you get a... Then, then you, you get a randomly composed set of owners of that particular bank. And we just don't know whether they are capable of running the bank or not. And that's when it gets difficult. And that's when it gets more difficult than most people think, because you can deal with a small bank over the weekend. But if you really want to do a proper due diligence, with emphasis on proper, of a very large bank, we're talking about six months. And somebody has to run that institution in the meantime. And, and then there, it always gets political in one way or the other. And it gets even more complicated when you do these things uh, cross-border. And I can use the Baltic, cases, the Baltic countries as a, as, a, as a good case during the global financial crisis, because then the issue was the following. The Baltic countries were totally dependent on Swedish banks. The Swedish banks created a huge mess in the Baltic countries. But Sweden was not dependent on Swedish banks creating a huge mess in the Baltic countries because they were just so small. And this is where it gets complicated and, 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 and difficult when it comes to dealing with cross-border issues and how to, how to figure out how to do, uh, do that. And ideally, you should at least in good times talk about these things with your neighbor from time to time.
2: Was that a Toronto Centre program that you did, the cross-border one? I know you've done some of the crisis simulations with the Toronto Centre to practice. And so Mark, you still didn't really help him because he doesn't feel good about the resolvability of global systemically important banks, I think, from what you said. Um, But is it still worth practicing? That was my question.
3: It is always worth practicing because when I was appointed director general of the Swedish Bank Support Authority, We had absolutely nothing on the books before that happened in terms of how you actually do things. And I ended up buying one bank for one krona at two o'clock in the morning. And I asked my chief legal counsel, could you help me and explain to me from a legal perspective what happens when a bank goes bust in this country? And the guy says, I have absolutely no idea because I think the last time was 1905. And that's not a good position to be in. So if you have a bit of formal guidance, it's enormously helpful. And that guidance will never ever be perfect because it's just too hard to have that detailed foresight. But at least it tells you sort of something about what to do and what not to do. And it also ideally gives you some guidance to the bankers so that you can tell them at 2 o'clock in the morning, guys, you can go home now, because I run this institution. And if you are hesitant when it comes to that, bring in your lawyers, and there's no question who's in charge. And that you need to sort of think about in in advance, and you need some kind of a framework for, uh, for that. I mean, everything we did in the early 90s was basically running the bank support authority as if we were an investment bank <laughs> and a holding company. And it worked, uh, but it's not a good position to be in.
2: And maybe in, uh, you know, many countries don't have the same political stability and credibility that you would have enjoyed at the time.
3: No, It was a very, very simple sort of agreement between me, myself, and the government. The country was in dire straits, really in dire straits. Somebody needed to handle this. The politician said, we'll give you the money and the powers. Tell, you, tell us what you need. If it doesn't work, we'll fire you.
4: Thank you, Dilruk Sharif of Harvard Kennedy School. As the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning continues to grow in the financial sector, how can central banks leverage their potential to manage monetary policy and prudential regulation while ensuring that these technologies are used ethically and responsibly?
3: As if I would know. (laughs) But my entire professional life, I have argued with highly, highly intelligent and skilled technicians who always have argued that if I add two more complicated equations, I can get a little bit closer to Nigro Falls without anything bad happening. And life has taught me that Markets function the worst when you need them the most, and AI cannot solve that problem uh, that that is something that you need to need to sort of accept and and and, and understand and understand and If you think that AI can solve every imaginable problem, then you probably end up with a problem yourself uh, because suppose just for the sake of the argument that you that you expand the balance sheet of your bank very, very quickly. In most postmortems, when you look at banks that went through an episode like that and then went under, you realize that management lost lost control. And AI is not going to help you with that. How do you think that AI can keep control of of, of everything? I I have my doubts. But it can probably be helpful, probably very, very helpful in, in the sense that uh, maybe they, you, we can figure out how to do these things so that you get um, get to deal with red flags earlier uh, than otherwise. But how you technically actually set it up and do it, that I don't, that I don't know.
4: Thank you, Stefan and Jennifer, an interesting conversation. So you were talking about the trade-offs between monetary policy and financial stability, but particularly in the current context when rates are going up, right? It was, that made me wonder about the opposite, right? So when rates are kept low for a very long time, uh, and that may be leverage everywhere, not only on banks, on, on everywhere what extent central banks need to be concerned with this and, and, and monetary policy need to be concerned with this, or do you feel that other regulatory measures, supervision, or, or other tools are effectively in dealing with the potential buildup of, of risks in this situation?
3: Well, it's the same kind of bet that I talked about earlier. Either you bet that somebody else is going to take care of the problem, or it bothers you to the extent that you are actually mindful of what is, uh, what is going on. In my case, during my tenure, what happened was that the politicians were very adamant making sure that the central bank does not do supervision, nor macroprudential. And then you end up in a situation where the only thing you can do is to constantly complain about what's going on in the housing market. And if the whole thing blows up, then at least exposed, you can say, I told you so. <laughs> and, and, and and this is just you know one of the realities of policymaking, and 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 sometimes uh, the, the, the the policy mix isn't sort of quite uh, optimal.
2: I think Kyle was politely accusing central bankers of being short-termist, right, and building a, a longer-term risk. That, that, that then supervisors are, if I, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, um, no, no, that no, then supervisors are stuck with it. He's asking, don't you have a responsibility as a central banker when you're setting rates to think about the financial stability consequences? I, I think
3: world? so. But that's because I've spent so many years dealing with things falling apart, so I know what it is like, and how many people get hurt, and how many years it takes to dig yourself out of, out of the hole uh, you, you ended up in. Uh, but that's my preferences. Uh, but at, at the same time, if you, on the political side, decide that you want to have a, if decide, that's to say too much, uh, that's overemphasizing it. If, if, the sum of, if the sum of decisions on the political side for decades produces a dysfunctional housing market, that creates a lot of risks. Well, there's not much you can uh, you can do about uh, do, do about that because in the in the real world you just have to live with these in, imperfections, and be aware. Ideally, be aware of them, and uh, make the best uh, make the best of it. But Jennifer's point is a serious and important one, and that is the time frame within which you do things. And that's a serious issue in the sense that if you look at how most monetary policy reports talk about monetary policy, basically you talk about it in a time frame one to three years out. But if that creates an enormous leverage re- year five, how do, you, how, do you deal with, how, how do you deal with this? And this is, this is a perennial dilemma when we deal with the future because how, how should you go about discounting the future? And how do you discount, what kind of a discount rate should you use for a really, really bad outcome in the distant future? And that's one of the hardest things we f- human beings have to, uh, have to deal with. And in many, many instances, we just tend to, uh, this is not specific to central banking at all, we just tend to ignore it.
2: Yeah, I think that speaks to climate, monetary policy, and financial stability and bank risk management. It's All the of same them. thing. All of them. Yeah. yeah.
4: If there was a change in um, global currency from the dollar to the yuan, um, what immediate changes in central policy banking do you see an impact in the global economy?
3: Hard to tell, but these these changes usually take quite a long time and it's a sort of a slow moving process. So you never change these sort of systems or lack of systems from one day to to the other. And there are many, many sort of studies that talk about these things. And if you look at uh, the economic uh, might, if I call it that, of the UK, They were sort of seriously shrinking for a long long time and still the pound was sort of widely used as a transactions currency Today uh, you have the dollar. What do we know what we have in 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 the future, but it seems to be incredibly hard to, to to engineer planned transitions And that's why why for example the SDR has never kind of taken off as a global currency because it's in the interest of somebody else to to stick to whatever it is that we have. One way to think about money, not at all in monetary policy terms and all the rest of it, is that money is actually a product. And it's a convenient, it makes it convenient to tra- transact. And either you're capable of producing a high-quality product, including payment systems, or you are not. And as long as you're producing good money, other people will use your money. But that actually includes how you transact and how you make payments. So in addition to financial stability, price stability, you also need uh, what I call transactional efficiency. And if there is no transactional efficiency, because it takes forever to send money across the globe, then somebody else is going to come up with another solution. Uh, But uh, but mostly, we never talk about monies using the plural in in, in, in that fashion. And either my apples are good or they're bad. And if they're bad, you'll use somebody else's apples. And of course, given that there are so many trained economists in the room, and I'm an economist myself, we always think that there is a plan. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and there is a solution at the end, once you have executed that plan. But given the sort of the randomness in the real world, some of it you just have to eat and accept that.
2: Sort of related question though, one thing that's always puzzled me, why do you think that the problem of cross-border payments and how expensive they are still eludes us, right, why?
3: Uh, Because so far, central banks have been unwilling to cooperate and construct a system that makes it super fast and cheap to make these transactions. While at the same time, it has been incredibly profitable for the private sector to create what I would call an oligopolistic system for these transactions. And if you combine that with legacy IT systems, that you ideally would like to write off and make money out of those systems as long as possible, then you end up with a very, very slow process. And then, of course, which is a completely different topic and a difficult one to deal with is uh, uh, money laundering and all all those aspects of it. So I would say that today it is well understood in the business that we have one equilibrium, but it's unstable but no one really wants to move to a new equilibrium. What, and, and, and somehow Libra was a sort of a threat to the whole system, but if you read the Libra papers, if I call it that, it struck me, and we're talking about several hundred, a couple of hundred pages, And I actually had my IT people to look at it, and they came back with a report explaining all these things. But they wrote about 10 pages on the topic, what kind of money is Libra? And when you read those 10 pages, then you sort of immediately concluded, maybe these guys should have studied a bit of monetary theory from the 1800s. But since they had not done that, they just ran up against a wall. Because they, they, they the, all those who were involved in this, of course, had the technical capability. But when you are making payments, and particularly when you are making payments across uh, border, everything you do is intangible. So we're not really talking about the computers only, we're at the same time talking about a legal framework. Because the only way to define money or a transaction in the IT world is to have a legal framework going with it. But at the same time, all legal frameworks today are national. And so far, there hasn't been a willingness on the major players in the world to get together and sort of figure it out and say, okay, this is what we're gonna, uh, gonna do. And that has, it, that has made it a rather slow process. But this is a dilemma in the sense that most people do understand today that I can talk to my buddies real time from Washington D.C. to somebody in Wellington in New Zealand, but I can't get the money to go there in real time, and 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 so and and this re- remains a dilemma. And I also see this at the European level because also in the in Europe. All the various EU member countries, they have their own systems and they have their own legacy systems and they have their own sort of legacy systems that were created by legacy banks. And all of them understand that if we get rid of this and run a European system, it will be much more efficient, probably much, much cheaper for the consumers and the end users, but how do I, as a financial institution, maintain my profit in that new environment, and what if I move too early so I will lose out and just lose market share? So that's, that's really sort of the hard part of it, to figure out how to, how to unlock uh, this. And so far, we just haven't been able to, uh, to, do, uh, to do that, and here we're talking actually about real stuff. Not, not the theoretical things coming to agreements, but actually here when it comes to now, now I'm talking about the retail side, international payment systems, cross-border payment systems in combination with CBDCs is uh, one avenue uh, which uh, certainly would be uh, would be doable. Uh, but so far there hasn't been a total failure on the par- pro- public private sector side. So that central banks have sort of been a bit reluctant to move in that direction. And that's because all central banks have a national mandate. No central bank has a global mandate. The fund
2: has. (laughs) Something for us to think about.
3: So uh,
0: this is a question is not as profound as the ones that you've been asked. So I apologize. This is more a leadership question, Stefan. So you're now gonna move from the center stage to the most important seats in the theater as a spectator. So as you're doing that, do you think that the current generation of regulators, supervisors, and your peers, central bank governors, I mean, do you have confidence in them? Do you think that they have it in them to manage this complex system that you're leaving for them to manage?
3: I think it's very much similar to conversations when you go and do a fund program and you talk to a finance minister or a central bank governor, and then you ask yourself, do I think that this individual has the right instincts and the guts to do things or not? And if you don't have the guts to decide, it doesn't matter how many books you have read and how many equations you have mastered. It's not going to help you. And particularly if you run into trouble, at the end, the only way to do it is to have a conversation with yourself. Am I willing to do this? Can I lose my job if I do this? Am I willing to just try to survive? Or am I gonna do something for the common good or maybe the history books? And that's very, very hard to to answer. You just don't know in, in advance. What I, what I do know and what I've learned over the years when it comes to, to being involved in situations like that is that those who are masterful in good times maybe aren't that masterful in difficult times. And that's the hardest things uh, when it comes to choosing those who are working together with. Will they last till three o'clock in the morning? And are they ready to take one step forward or will they uh, disappear behind the curtains? And I know instances like that when individuals have said to me, I can't take this. I just cannot take this. It's irresponsible to decide within three hours because it takes three months or three years to figure this one out. And I've had to say that you can say, but I only have three hours. And, and, And that's really, really the hard part But it really helps if you've done it before. So if you drive an ambulance, it's hard the first time. But if you do it for a couple of years, it's a lot easier. If you do a fun program, if you've done many fun programs, it gets easier. And if you are a fireman, uh, it's not a good thing to start knitting on the hose when the house, house is burning. You should try to do that in advance.
0: He has reasonable doubt. And that would mean that we should. <laughs> <laughs> the good news is and that that's he's. That's your
3: interpretation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's end of the day. But anyway, I think that so there's a huge issue about just at the time when the system is turning so interesting and complex. Um, you know, people like you, that generation is almost stepping out and a new lot is coming in. And there is an issue of who's going to make the call. And do they have the right set of right temperament to do it? I think that will remain the test of time. And my yeah. question was really motivated from Toronto Center's leadership quest plus your own experience.
3: Well, the hard part, I mean, I am speaking for my, myself. When I went to the Stockholm School, I never expected to lead anything or anybody. And I also had my mathematical and theoretical face in life, and then eventually when you rise through the ranks, you need to accept the idea that somebody else is gonna do the math and it's your job to decide. And all of us, uh, if you have the privilege of rising through the ranks and you survive, have to go through that process and internalize that in one way or the other because you simply cannot do everything yourself. That is physically absolutely impossible to, uh, to do so in the end, you have to know the plumbing. And then you have to learn, and maybe this is not well well put, you have to know how to bet on people. Can I trust these guys or not? Do they seem to have the right instincts? do they on average seem to come to a reasonable conclusion? Or are they in complete denial? So this thing is just gonna go totally overboard because they just don't get it. And that's part of, uh, that's part of leadership, trying to understand that, which has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the financial sector. It's just if you are a military man, it's the same thing. If you're running hospitals, if you're running large corporations, whatever it is that you do and you sort of rise through the ranks, uh, then each and every manager leader is gonna have to grapple with those things.
2: I think that's a great way to end. Uh, We have uh, appreciated your leadership uh, across the board. You were here for a while, you've been at the Basel Committee, you've been a long time in your own country at the helm. And uh, we can see why it ran so so well. It, the, the, it's been an amazing experience to ask you these questions because the, the, the answers are so well-framed and so coherent. The thinking that you have done over these many years of experience, it's absolutely irreplaceable. And I think we all appreciated it very much. Thank you, Steph.
3: Thank you. Thank you.